Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 490 for September 25th, 2019. On today's show, saxophonist Caroline Davis. This show is supported by its members without whom it would really not even be possible. I'm trying hard to make this and my other podcast a brief chat into my living. And you can help me do that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are now two membership levels, $5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. I'm super excited because September has started off with a bang, with five people either joining for the first time or else upgrading their memberships. Huge thanks to David Beckman, Ewan Preston, Nick Spencer, all three of whom became members, and to Richard Caymans and Colleen Kennedy for upgrading their memberships to the $10 level. Look, this is how this show is going to continue to exist. I can't put it any more simply than that. Right now, I am producing six new podcast episodes a week, five for the other show and one for this, plus two bonus episodes a month for both of those shows. And it's a ton of work. And because not enough people are members yet, I also have a job. So any help you can provide would be really wonderful because it takes a ton of hours to make all of this happen. Again, go to thejazzsession.com slash join. Saxophonist Caroline Davis released an album earlier this year called Alula. Here's the title track. excited to have Caroline Davis on the show, who is a, just a really cool improviser and composer and a person who brings in some surprising things to the world of improvised music. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you for having me. Thanks even more Happy. because I'm, I'm catching you in Paris. Uh, you t- tend to move around <laughs> a lot, it seems, which is <laughs> what musicians do, I guess. And uh, I really appreciate that you were able to, to make it all work out. Yeah. Just got off the plane. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow, you're not kidding around then. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, this album I found particularly fascinating when you first sent it to me uh, over the summer because I am uh, an amateur birder. I really love uh, birds and bird watching and learning about birds. And so an album that saw its genesis at least partly through the exploration of 
bird physiology and physics of course immediately caught my attention oh i want to talk about the the duo partnership that also led to this group but first can you talk about the album's i guess scientific inspiration yeah well it kind of came about because i was reading my copy of the sibley guide to birds because <laughs> i'm starting to try to get into amateur bird watching myself even though the first step of purchasing a good set of binoculars hasn't been carried out yet. (laughs) But I've been reading that book for some time now just to familiarize myself and to try to sort of notice colorizations of birds and different types of birds through the book. But I was reading about this little structure called the Alula, which is like a projection on like the anterior part of a bird wing. It's made up of some bones and a few feathers, and it's kind of, it's also called the bastard wing because it's only used during flight and takeoff and landing. And I thought that to just be so interesting. And I started noticing it while watching birds flying, and it's just this little projection that kind of like sticks out. (laughs) It's this little magical piece of the bird wing that helps aid in the direction of of turning quickly or dipping and those little structures that are you know used for those specific moments are so interesting to me scientifically and I thought it to be nicely related to to music in certain ways because I started reading some articles and I noticed some um, ratios between the wingspan and the size of the Alula feather. And so I used some of those ratios to write some of the compositions in the, for the band. idea of the alula as a metaphor too i mean i think i think we often find if i might be reading too much into this and feel free to stop me but i think we often find that there are things that we don't pay attention to or or don't use in ourselves until we need them and then we find that there's more available than we thought it feels like a kind of a beautiful metaphor for the human experience to me or at least that was one of the ways that i interpreted it while listening and reading about it yeah absolutely absolutely i think so I want to talk more about how the Alula relates to the music on the album, but first, the other important part of the genesis of this recording comes originally from a a duo pairing that you were part of. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I met Greg Saunier through another great composer and friend, Kurt Sidner, who now lives in Richmond, Virginia, but I met him in New York, and he introduced me to Greg Saunier and all of the other Deerhoof people. Um, and I, I've 
been a big fan of Deerhoof for a long time, probably over a decade now. And I have a lot of their albums and I've always thought that it, the music coming out of Deerhoof very much relates to the world of improvised music and modern classical music. And that was kind of what I was trying to do with this band is incorporate these three sort of visions that I wanted to sort of combine into one sound, a lot of improvising you know, some funkiness and related to the 70s in jazz and modern classical music, those three sort of worlds I wanted to meld together. And Greg was a big part of that reason for doing that. We played several duo shows in New York. I used to curate at this place called 65 Fen in Prospect Lefferts Gardens. We played there. We played at Shapeshifter. And then I had an idea to add synthesizers, and I was sort of playing synthesizers myself, and that was really hard <laughs> to do all at once, looping and things like that, and playing saxophone. So I thought, maybe I'll get Matt Mitchell to play, <laughs> and he was interested in doing it, and had a he has a Prophet 6, which is definitely the sound that I was going for. That keyboard has a lot of flexibility and he really uses it well in all the contexts that he plays it in. So I was interested in involving him in that situation, even though he's sort of known for being a pianist mostly. So, As a person who in high school in the 80s was listening to a ton of prog rock from the 70s and then <laughs> that continued on, the sound of the Prophet 6 uh, is certainly one that is in my ear and I think it's beautiful in this music because there's something this might sound ridiculous but there's something very organic about synthesizers from that era just given the ways they were generating tones and I think it it melds really beautifully both conceptually with what it sounds to me like you're trying to do here but just sonically too it it has a weightiness and a, a kind of almost tactile feel that I think is really important to this music. Yeah, absolutely. I was just playing with a good friend the other day. We were both kind of playing a session and both of us were playing soprano saxophones together. And there was this moment where we were both playing in the upper register of the horn and we heard this difference tone, which oscillated depending on if one of us was kind of in or out of tune. And it was so much the sound, like the sound of a synthesizer. Like if you would use an oscillator button on a synthesizer and it's it's very organic you know these sounds are happening in the in the stratosphere you just kind of have to be perceiving them you know they're they're everywhere <laughs> those those different tones that become synthesized to our ears you know it's very organic for sure
mentioned that in your research on the Alula, you used some of the the ratios of various measurements of it, feathers to bone and that kind of thing, and wing size, to inform these compositions. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah, there's one composition in particular called Wing Beat, which is the sing- also the single on the album, that uses two numbers that I read about in one particular article. So the top voice has 13, I believe, pitch classes, and the bottom voice has 27. And those that ratio turns out to be equal to the ratio that we're using to understand the Alula structure in this article that I read. At the end, they don't ever really meet up, but the pitch the pitch classes kind of keep repeating and oscillating through this this uh, very notey pattern. <laughs> Somewhere, I've forgotten where now, but uh, Greg talking about playing that piece and, uh, you know, really having to figure out what his his role was in it. And then I think I think that's the piece where he mentions and then I discovered it was kind of James Brownie and hmm. uh, which I thought was just kind of beautiful. I mean, there's a, you know, I'm not sure if on first listen, most people would say, oh, yeah, that's what this reminds me of for sure. Um, but you, once you hear someone say that, you can see how you know he's bringing in influences that might seem surprising to this music that you know seems kind of heady in one sense, but is pretty grounded in another. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, he has a way of really taking some odd groupings or odd phrasing and uh, turning it into something that's you know under understandable and more approachable, I guess. And he did that also with this other song on the record called Remages, where he was frustrated with, I think he was questioning his own contributions. And then at the end, he ended up adding a cowbell to the whole thing, which we ended up pitching down because I was like, maybe this is a little high. And so we pitched it down a little bit, but it did bring the whole track together and made it super funky. And I was, I was very skeptical, but he knew he knew what he was doing, exactly what he was doing. <laughs>
added some remarks for the synthesizer contributions from Matt, and that really added a lot on, on this one track called Vortex Generator. He he had Matt play some extra parts overdubbing, and that really sort of, to me, brought him into a, almost a producer role in the album for that song in particular. And since he mixed and mastered the record, he just put a lot of his energy into it and made it something that was uh, also part of his own voice, you know, which I really appreciate. And it came straight for me from Deerhoof, you know. It's very hard to have a serious conversation about a track after the artist has just said that what this track needed was more cowbell. But, but I'll, try to, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to press on as if you hadn't said I that. I know. <laughs> um, I think I know that a fair amount of this, well, I mean, you can hear just listening to it, a fair amount of this was composed and it's a, a kind of a, a very organic, that's a word I keep coming back to, mixture of composition and improvisation. But will you talk about what you brought into the studio with you for the musicians? All the pieces were written and every single track has improvisation on it except the last one which is well sorry second to last which is called landing and that one is just really a through composed piece there's no improvisation on that one um but there were a couple tracks on there one of them is called purrs and uh there are a couple tracks where i just told them to improvise on the themes of certain compositions. And that one in particular was uh, improvised on the theme of Vortex Generator. And at the beginning of Wingbeat, there's a little moment of improvisation that's also based on the the themes of that song. So there'd be moments where I would, we would just improvise for like 10 minutes. And I took some snippets of that improvisation material and put it in there as interludes. So, but everything else was pretty much through composed with sections of open open sections for improvisation some of them had chord changes other others were just based on forms and and meters or rhythmic groupings so it's a fair equal amount of written material and improvised improvised material and how much did you use the studio as an instrument you mean the the items in the studio yeah, or for, just for example you talked about pitching down the cowbell are there other examples mm-hmm. of you know production Production as composition or production as added uh, added musical elements? Oh, yeah. Um, well, for one thing, I randomly brought in my Line 6 guitar pedal to add on the saxophone. So I had a wet and dry mic for my saxophone. And you can hear that on a few different tracks. And we sort of mixed that in together. But I wasn't planning on doing that, and that was a very last-minute decision. Because that studio also is like very well equipped for electronic music in general. There's a lot of synthesizers laying around. It's owned by Shazad Ismaili, who's been known to been be involved with a lot of creative music projects. And um, there's an ARP synthesizer there that we used on landing. I wouldn't have used that if it we if we weren't recording there. Um, there was Wurlitzer and piano, and we did have those on tracks, but we ended up scrapping that during the mixing phase because it wasn't working with the vibe of the record. Um, and then, yeah, the cowbell was definitely part of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> and then also Greg found some random percussion objects that he added to the drum set. He's very particular in the way he sets up his drums. Um, I mean, he's not, he's not uh, stubborn about it. I think he just like, he's will play with a snare and a bass drum, you know, but add things to it so on one track he put bells on the bass drum 
which was something that we that was sort of added at the last minute, but also he used the bells from the studio. I think he stacked two symbols on top of each other for one of the tracks. Then, and those were symbols that were just kind of laying around at the studio. So yeah, we used a lot of the things in that studio, figure eight studio in, uh, in Brooklyn. I wanted to mention uh, self-servingly that there's an interview with uh, Matt in the Jazz Session archives as well, because otherwise I'll forget. But folks, if you want to uh, know more about Matt, you can go to the archives and, and listen to that. Caroline, when you were talking about the compositions with Matt and Greg, how much did you describe the, the bird physiology or bird physics or the the ideas of flight or the imagery? Was it important that you were all kind of in the same headspace or or did that not matter so much i never mentioned it really (laughs) um it was sort of just my own personal uh view and my own personal um inspiration for it and so most of that kind of came during the writing process for me um and obviously i used a lot of it when I was practicing that sort of imagery, I use imagery a lot when I'm practicing my saxophone and when I'm writing music. But leading up to the re- recording, I, I used a lot of that imagery and I went back and read a lot of those papers to improvise. And sometimes I would improvise with drawings in front of me of the Alula structure. So I use a lot of it personally, but not with the band. How does that affect you when you bring imagery into your practicing or or composition? Like how How direct... A connection is there between what you're seeing or envisioning and what comes out of your horn or onto the paper? Yeah, I'm not one to be sort of like an obvious sound to imagery kind of person. It's more of I kind of try to go for the for the essence of the image and how it maybe makes me feel. So it's not like, oh, I my saxophone is now sounding like, you know, like bird calls or whatever, but, um, but yeah, I'm trying to kind of go for the shapes of the feathers. And so maybe sometimes I'll use, so maybe sometimes I'll use the imagery of the, the way the feathers are, are arranged in the Alula and I'll like come up with melodic shapes and play them on my saxophone. And I'll explore that for like an hour, for example. And they could be, you know, distinct shapes. So it could just be like, you know, perfect fourth up, minor seventh down, major third up, major second down, things like that. And I could transform those into different realms. Um, and that I would come up with that shape by looking at the image. And so it could be direct like that, or it could just be a feeling like, oh, this is a structure that has these relationships inside of it and I'm just going for those tactile feelings of immediate uh, touching quality, if that makes sense. It's more of an ethereal or mysterious way of looking at the structure rather than just like, oh, direct intervallic distinction there. break from the music to talk about membership. I've been recording conversations just like the one you're listening to since 2007. 
I think it's important that we document the history of this music, that we follow musicians' careers throughout the years, and that we have a chance to hear from people who sometimes don't get covered by the major jazz magazines, and sometimes do, but certainly don't get covered in the major press outlets. That's what the Jazz Session is all about, and if you also think that's worth supporting, I hope you'll become a member today for just 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com join. At the $5 level, you get a monthly bonus episode, which usually features some extra audio from the interviews. Plus, you get early access to every show and a yearly gift. At the $10 level, you get all of that, plus a monthly episode in addition to the main one, exploring a classic jazz recording. 41 people stepped up to support the show last season. And if this show is to become my living, I need something more like 200 people. Are you the next one? Go to thejazzsession.com join and say yes. Now back to the episode. people to go to carolinedavis.org which will be linked in the show notes to this show and click on the watch tab because you can see first of all you can see some live performances of this music but you can also see the video for the single wing beat which is which is kind of a, a lovely interpolation in the other direction of the music the existing music to imagery of birds in flight and moving in other ways and uh, it just it works extremely well and i you know, I know the music was there first, but the kind of cross-pollination of the imagery and the music, I think, is really works really beautifully. And I'm not sure you need the imagery in order. Well, you don't need the imagery to appreciate the music, but there is something about it that I think adds another element of of kind of awe and wonder to the music that I found really arresting when I watched the video. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that video was done by Davy Lazar, who is a really incredible trumpet player. Also, he just played with Matt at his residency series at the stone this past week. And, uh, yeah, he did that video. I just sent him a lot of footage and he, he timed everything out. It's really fantastic. I'm reaching you as we mentioned in Paris. Are you uh, playing some shows there? Is that why you're traveling? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, two different things. I'm, I'm here to play some shows with my colleague, Rob Clearfield, who, we are coming out with an album on Friday, which is really exciting, the sunny side. And so we're playing a show tonight, and we're playing in Switzerland on the 27th on Friday. And uh, But I'm also here because my my father passed away in February, oh, and sorry. I'm here. Yeah, it's it hasn't been the easiest year, but um, I'm here also to see my family and to spend more time with them and you know, remember my dad and it's his, actually his birthday is on Friday. His birthday would have been on Friday. So it's a, it's a good time to be here. And Paris was also like the last time, the last place that I saw him. And so it's good to be here again and remember him in these really positive ways. So. Will you tell me more about the project with Rob? I know I've seen footage uh, of the two of you playing and it's it's cool and it's really different from what people are hearing as they're listening to snippets from Alula. Uh, tell me some more about that project. This project sort of came about we knew each other in Chicago and we played a lot together in various projects but never 
collaboratively this way until I moved to New York and he was about to move here to Paris is which where he lives now. We put our compositions together side by side and realized that they work really well together. So we came up with this project and it's called Persona, sort of an homage to the Ingmar Bergman movie of the same name of the the two women who are you know you can't tell which one is which <laughs> and so sort of uh kind of playing a play on that even though the music's not directly related to the film it's just the name of the band so <laughs> moments ago about your dad in particular but your your parents and you uh you were born in singapore and you have called many different places home and i wonder uh, what impact do you think if any that's had on on your music or your approach to music or what you include in your music i think because we moved around so much as a as as in my childhood i've definitely like to incorporate many different kinds of influences, which is sort of the premise of why I have these three projects ongoing. I have like my quintet, which is the relation to the record heart tonic that came out last year. And sort of an extension of that is persona. And then I have Alula, which is a little bit more improvisatory and uh, sort of neoclassical then I have this other project, My Tree, which is the project that I sing in, and it's more kind of in the pop R&B sector of music. I like I like to sort of bring together all of these influences to into one Caroline. I feel that way about my life too, from all of the places I've lived. You know, I li- was born in Singapore. We we lived in Sweden during the summers. And I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, in Dallas, Texas, in Chicago, and now I'm in New York, and I travel back here to Europe fairly often. And I know a lot of people do a lot of traveling, but I feel like the thing that makes me unique is that I've had to readapt in all of these places and sort of find my place again. And for me, it kind of goes right back to the music and how I shape my existence that way, and that becomes sort of my home instead of the place where I live. I decided not to look up what music cognition is, something in which you have a, a PhD from Northwestern, because I just would prefer that you tell me what it is. So what's music cognition? Um, well, in, in, to keep it short, it's really just the understanding of how music affects the brain and the mind and the way we organize our knowledge. 
And there's many different fields within the larger topic of music cognition. So there's like social psychology of music, there's the neuroscience of music, there's cultural cognition of music, there's ethnographic cognitive science, there's, you know, so many different, you know, little offshoots. And it sort of makes up this large field of music cognition. I'm saying large but it's not that large. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very small field, but it, it really is just like how we understand music and how we organize our knowledge of music in our minds and brains. Did you focus on a, a particular subfield yourself? Yeah, I my interest was in community structure and how, you know, like scenes of musicians organize themselves and how that relates to um like our cognition. So basically, how do you think about music and how that sort of is directly related with who you want to play with and who you want to hang out with. So if you hear music and you sort of relate it back to like the school of Louis Armstrong, you hear music in a certain way versus like if you are listening to music and you relate it back to like the school of Derek Bailey or some of these British English musicians, there's, there's just different ways of hearing and thinking about music. And we organize our community structures in similar ways that we organize our cognition. come back to uh, Alula when I was listening to it the the first couple times I was finding myself thinking of the a little bit of the like low lodger era of David Bowie and then mm. um, when I finally I always listen to things before reading any of the material that the artists send so it doesn't color my listening and then I opened the the press release that you sent with it and saw David Bowie's name in there. And I thought, well, either we're both thinking of this, although his career is so wide and vast that you could be thinking of anything and it will sound like David Bowie. Uh, but I was curious as to how he, he factors in uh, influentially into this music. I mean, yeah, he's such a, he's such a big one. Definitely has, has totally transformed my way of thought, not just musically, but visually you know um yeah I recently honestly before that record was recorded I recently got the like 40th anniversary edition of Space Oddity and there's all these like radio you know moments where he's giving an interview or like there's live versions of records there's a BBC radio thing there's like the demo and it was just it's so nice to hear the you know, process for him going through all these things and hearing him talk about the music, hearing him perform it live on the radio. 
And also the visual imagery of his stuff has always been an influence. And somehow I relate that to Robert Pollard, who did the artwork for this album, who's also involved in the band Guided by Voices, which is a band that Matt also is a big fan of as well. But yeah, I mean, David Bowie, I've I've always been a huge fan of his work and not just because he plays saxophone, but (laughs) because he's able to sort of combine all these influences into one David Bowie, you know? One of the things I always loved about Bowie was that you could listen to a Bowie album and you knew that like six months later, you'd be hearing a lot of other people who were playing in the same genre that Bowie had just laid down, you know, the, the trail for, um, and that it would be, and often was almost completely unlike what the last record had sounded like in a, a fearless way that I always appreciated. I mean, there were, you know, I think there were hits and misses along the way, but I did never felt like mm-hmm. he was constrained by an expectation of who he had to be, which I think is a no, great yeah. way to approach music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And somebody who's born who was born in the same year as Bowie, I believe, also forty seven or something like that, um, is Laurie Anderson, who is a huge yeah. is also a huge influence on my music and just work and her performance, her performance and her look and her poetry and the fact that she plays you know violin and sings and plays keyboards and everything and that she was married to Lou Reed and just all of these influences that she was able to pull together she might even be more of a hero to me (laughs) than than David Bowie honestly and it's funny to me that they were born in the same year but she's still alive you know and uh been trying to meaning meaning to make some contact with her so I can talk to her about her her life and everything so yeah I was in high school I guess when uh, Mr. Heartbreak either Mr. Oh, nice. Heartbreak or Strange Angels came out I think one is like mm. 84 85 and one's 89 so anywhere so I was yeah in Mr. High Heartbreak is yeah Mr. Heartbreak is 84 and, and uh, yes yeah I remember I loved both those records so much, but I knew nothing about Laurie Anderson. I don't even know how I heard. Oh, I think I heard of Mr. Heartbreak because Adrian Ballou plays guitar on it. And Mm. Adrian Ballou was in King Crimson at the time, which I really loved. And so, you know, there's a little, that little tree of tree of music or whatever. And so I knew nothing about her. I loved those records. And then it, several years after that, I mean, probably quite a few years after that, I realized kind of who she was and what, like the unbelievable expanse of her artistry mm-hmm. and career. And I thought like yeah. I had as great as those records are and any, anybody would be proud to have released those records there. They are such a tiny piece of, of Laurie Anderson writ large. And it was so yeah. exciting to realize how much more was out there to explore. And I think that's just, that's so cool when musicians are not bound in by any particular thing. I mean, it's just, I, I'd like to check this out. And so off they go and, I just, yeah, I find that absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah, that record is so cool too because uh, Peter Gabriel is singing background vocals on that. Yeah, and he's producing, and yeah, it's so good. I'm I'm a big fan. My guest for this episode has been Caroline Davis. You can find her work at carolinedavis.org. She has an album that came out in May, which is called Alula, that we've been talking about and hearing, and also uh, another album coming out this Friday, if you're listening to this uh, in real time in uh, September of 2019 uh, with the group uh, Persona. Remind me the name of that album, Caroline? It's called Anthems. 
And I encourage you to, to seek out her work, uh, seek her out live. You can find uh, true dates and all that kind of stuff at carolinedavis.org. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm, I'm really glad you took the time, especially you know given the, the logistics of arranging this while you're traveling the world. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful for that, and it's been lovely to, to spend some time with you. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. Appreciate it. If you like what you just heard, become a member for $5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, Caroline Davis. You'll find her at carolinedavis.org. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the logo. The Jazz Session is on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. I post a clip from the archives of the show each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Instagram and Twitter. You can rate and review this program on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. There's a newsletter for The Jazz Session, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. And I urge you to come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.